1994, there was a master plan concocted by the Hutu population to commit mass genocide on the Tutsi population in the country of Rwanda. Through, through mass media propaganda, belittling a whole people group, men, women, and children, seeing them as, as cockroaches to be stamped out, to be shot and killed. Men, women, and children. They ended up murdering 800,000 people. And so in fear for their lives, the Rwandan refugees flee. There was two million of Rwanda's population fleeing for their lives. Who will help us? Now that might feel too far away in 1994. So let's go to 2011. A group of teenagers in Syria were arrested for an anti-government graffiti they, they, they put on some walls uh, which sparked protests in which the government violently suppressed and then the country spiraled into a civil war that is going on today. And so today there are more than 6.8 million Syrian refugees fleeing, sometimes even swimming for their lives, begging for someone to bring them safe. Or today, in Ukraine, nearly 4 million people are displaced because of Russia, who isn't just targeting um, the Ukrainian army, but they are now bombing apartment complexes and just utter evil. Men, women, and children have no part in the war. They're bombing them. And now they are fleeing for their lives. And we could talk about the Afghanistan crisis. We could talk about the South Sudan crisis. All of these crises. And it's at times like this I'm reminded of our very own Statue of Liberty and that, that beautiful poem that says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And when the, the Haitian boat people came to our shores and we, we turned them away to, to die at sea or to return home to the evils that they had just left, many of us are wondering, do we still believe what our Statue of Liberty says? To give us, you're tired, you're poor. And so today we're going to discuss a refuge for refugees. That's the title of my sermon here. I don't know if I've introduced myself yet. <laughs> my name is Slim. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. And so we're going to talk about a refuge for refugees. Uh, the path we're going to take to get there is we're going to look at the refugee, the refuge, and the refurb. The refugee, the refuge, and the refurb. The refugee. Now, if this is your first Sunday, I know it's intense. <laughs> Sometimes we get intense. But we are in the thick of this book called Isaiah. It's 
a very long book, as Malcolm uh, joked, uh, but we're in the thick of this book called Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is God's prophet to his people uh, and to the nation of Judah. Uh, and there's a, we're in a, a series of particular judgments uh, on those neighboring nations surrounding Judah who they might be tempted to trust because the Assyrian Empire is creeping in on them. And so we have this map up here, I think, to give you an idea just spatially where things are at. You can see Judah kind of in the center there. Um, and then Philistines are, are to the left in red, and Moab is, is to the right in purple there, if you can see it. Um, and so God reveals that these very nations that you might be tempted to trust in are the very ones who are going to be coming to you asking for help very shortly. And so it, the madness of trusting in those nations. And the common theme, as I tried to sit back and look at this, these two chapters, the common theme that seems to spread these two chapters um, is the theme of refugee. And, and a refugee is typically fleeing some horror or crisis. And so first to the Philistines, uh, in verse 29, it says, Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. So basically saying, don't get too excited that Assyria is coming down because something far worse is coming, namely Babylon. And with that in mind, in verse 30, the poorest of the poor will find pasture, these, these refugees will find a, a safe harbor, and the needy will lie down in safety, but your root I will destroy by famine, and it will slay your survivors." And so you have these refugees fleeing the Philistines coming to Judah. And then chapter 15 and 16, you have the country of Moab. Now, I know, we're like so far removed. We don't even, can't even put this in terms that we would even care about. But you have the, the country of Moab. So just real quick, a, a Bible history lesson. Do you guys remember there was this old man named Abraham? Yes? Okay, so there was Abraham in Genesis. He at once was referred to as Abram. He used to roll with a guy named Lot, right? They used to go everywhere together, inseparable. Uh, Lot was his, his nephew, um, but they do go separate ways, uh, journey style. And Abe went to the west, and Lot went to the east. And Lot, you remember there's the Sodom and Gomorrah, and then Lot lost his wife in, in that. And then his two daughters, Lot's two daughters, get him drunk take advantage of him, you could say raped him, and in so doing, the oldest daughter became pregnant and had a son named Moab. And so it's kind of a sketchy history, right? And Israel, you can think of their, their story, Israel uh, was in Egypt in slavery, but when they are freed, trying to come back home, they're trying to go through the country of Moab, and you would think, oh good, we're family, you'll have safe passage. And that's not the case. The king actually says, let's, let's, let's hire someone to, to pronounce a curse upon uh, my old family members. And so Balaam comes out instead of, instead of giving a curse, gives a blessing. And so you can tell that there, there's bad blood in this family. So much so, you know, uh, Moab invades Judah in 2 Kings. And they, they try to help Nebuchadnezzar later, right? And so you can... <laughs> Bad blood. And yet at the same time, Ruth, the Moabite, if you've heard of that, she is the great-grandmother to David, right? Who becomes the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather to Jesus, 
right? And so in, in modern terms, Judah and Moab have history, right? <laughs> That's how we just summarize everything. They have history. It, it's, it's sketchy, but they have history. And chapter 15 describes the destruction coming to Moab by the evil empire Assyria. And it is so complete, as you heard her read so well, um, all of these different names and cities. But, but it's walking through the cities and, and saying that their destruction is going to happen in a night. It's just going to be so complete. It's going to happen in a night. And then in verse 8, it says, Their outcry echoes along the border of Moab. Their wailing reaches as far as Eglim. Their lamentation as far as Be'er Elim. These chapters depict the horrors of war, the ugliness of war, and, and, and the tragedy and the sorrow of the victims of this war who are now fleeing as refugees. And I think I want to pause here and say when I say refugee, I can just tell we all tend to stiffen our lips a little. Because whenever we talk about refugees, uh, immigration, asylum, we all get real uncomfortable. Oh, no. Because it feels as if we were talking about the Bible, and now we've left the realm of the Bible, and now we're talking politics, right? Whenever we, we start talking about the, the, these terms here, and I think that's just sad that our options are only wall or no wall, right? Open borders or not. And, and so I just want to say, instead of being stuck in the binary um, uh, way of thinking here, I want you to see that the Bible actually speaks quite a bit about refugees and foreigners and immigration and things like this. And so I think one problem we have when we talk about this stuff is we just tend to lump all of these things into politics and we're like, mm, politics produces fights. I don't like fights, so I don't want to talk about that. This is a, some, some people's deal, way they deal with conflict, right? <laughs> and so it's unnecessary, not helpful. Let's not talk about it. But two, I think we just lump all these terms together. I think we've actually, we're kind of confused on what these terms mean. And so just very simply, an immigrant. An immigrant is a person who comes to live permanently in a foreign country. That's all it is. So anyone deciding to change locations for whatever reason is an immigrant. Just to leave their country and to live in another country, right? A subcategory of immigrant would be a refugee. And a refugee would be a person who has been forced to leave their country in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. Now, the U.S. Code actually gives refugees legal status in our country. Did you know this? The U.S. Code actually says, no, you have legal status, and the United States actually invites refugees to come into our country. And I would say 10 years ago, that word was actually not political. Refugees wasn't political. It was more just humanitarian. Someone experiencing such horrors, just basic human rights, we say, yes, come in. But it's become political, so it's hard to talk. And there's a third term there that, that, that we've heard, maybe you've heard, is asylum seeker. You've heard this term maybe and wondered, I don't really know what we're talking about. It's, it's another subcategory here, is a person who has left their home country and is seeking safety or asylum in said country, and the United States or whoever country is in charge of deciding, is the persecution they're fleeing justified or not? 
to say that they are of refugee status, okay? Does that make sense? I feel like sometimes just hearing the terms, understanding the terms helps the whole categories. But now, as we read chapter 15, if you reread chapter 15, which we won't do, I want you to ask, does this qualify as a refugee? Someone escaping war, persecution, or natural disaster. It talks about the, the, these people are just wailing. And you can just imagine someone on the street just in tears, wailing, crying out. Doesn't your heart break at least somewhat? It says that their, their heads are shaved, their beards are shaved because of such mourning that's going on, of lost family members. Soldiers are weeping. And then it says the rivers are just full of blood. And so does this count as refugee status? 100%. This is refugee status. And so what will the Lord do with these refugees? Will he bring them in or not? And so let's look from the refugee to the refuge. The definition of, of, of a refuge is, is just the condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. And in verse 3 and 4, we have this heartbreaking cry that we, we might be able to hear from our, our very own borders here in Texas. Make up your mind, Moab says. Render a decision. Make your shadow like night. At high noon, hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. And so you can hear them saying, will you let us in? Make a decision, yes or no. Our pursuers are coming for us any minute. Make up your mind. Let us hide in your shade. Will you be our shelter? And Isaiah here then pivots from saying that the nation as the shelter to the, this just king being their shelter. It's this beautiful, beautiful, here's the hope of this passage. And I want to read verse 4 to you, and I'll read it slow and maybe a second time. For anyone who is, who's fleeing oppression, hear verse 4 and hear the hope here. The oppressor will come to an end. After a week like this, how good is that to hear? The oppressor will come to an end, and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. Mm. The aggressor will vanish from the land. You don't have to flee. And so not just hiding shelter and asylum in this new country. It says the oppressor will come to an end, and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. Isaiah is saying, the evil will not always endure. There's such hope just boiling out of this passage. It is so good. And then in verse 5, in love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Mm. <laughs> like, the beauty of these words for someone who is seeking asylum, who is begging for someone to, to give them safety, give us shelter, fleeing war-torn countries and corrupt leaders, 
to say that there is one who's going to seek true justice and who isn't going to be slow to render justice in this, this gradual way. It's going to be speeding the cause of righteousness and justice. And so this king is a refuge for refugees. This king is a refuge for all of those fleeing abuse, for all those fleeing the horrors of humanity. This king is a refuge for refugees. For all those fleeing from abusive cops, drunk on power, this king is a refuge. For all those fleeing mass shooters, this king is a refuge. This king is a refuge from the horrors of humanity. We have to believe that. And not just a shield from those horrors. Biblical justice, oh, it's beautiful. (laughs) It's both retributive, but it's also restorative. This king is going to make all things new. He's going to make things right so that all the nightmares come untrue. This messianic king is not just for Israel. The response of Isaiah is saying, this is open for all. For all these nations, for all these peoples, he is the hope for all refugees. But if you are fleeing from a corrupt king, if you are fleeing from an oppressor, would you trust anyone else after that? If you've seen kings abuse their power, would you be quick to trust in another king? Probably not. And so the question then goes, how can I trust this king? How can I trust that this king is the one who is good, who is right? How can I trust that he's not just as corrupt? Because I've been betrayed, I've been hurt. And so whether you are someone who is fleeing a country or not, whether you've been betrayed, hurt, or traumatized, you know the feelings of questioning everything and everyone around you at this point. And so what evidence do we have that this king is good and will lead out in love? And I just want you to see that this passage reveals we have a God who weeps. We have a God who's not ashamed to weep, who wails for his people. In 15.5, it says, My heart cries out over Moab. 16.9, So I weep as Jazer weeps for the vines of Sibma, Heshbon, and Elilah. I drench you with tears. I drench you with tears. Oh, the love of God, right there. That's who we take refuge in. A God who says, I'm going to drench you with tears. A king who says, you are so close to my heart that when you hurt, I hurt too. That when you're up late at night crying, I'm crying there with you, for you, and over you. I drench you with tears. This passage makes me think of the shortest verse in the Bible. Do you know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Y'all are good. (laughs) Jesus wept in John 11. I think one of the reasons it's the shortest verse in the Bible is for you just to sit and look at it and chew on it. You know what precipitated Jesus weeping was a man named Lazarus who had died. And they're all asking, trying to get Jesus 
to come do something about it and wondering why didn't you do something before it happened? And Jesus sees all the, all the town is weeping over Lazarus, realizing this, this Lazarus must have been somebody worth remembering, somebody good. And so he says, let's go to him. And the first thing that Jesus does right before he resurrects Lazarus, it says Jesus wept. Even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Because he felt the pain that you and I feel. And then once he, the verse right after Jesus wept, when people see his weeping, verse 36 says, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Mm. See how he loved them. That's the God we serve who loves you so deeply, who weeps at your pain and your hurt. More than just weeping over us, we have a God who says, I'm going to do something about it. Who saw the corruption, who saw the sickness of humanity and said, the only way to save them is for me to lay down my life for them. And so he picks up this really heavy wood. We just say cross and we think of necklaces. This giant beam and carries it up a hill and breaks the skin with the nails through his hands and dies on our behalf because he loves you. Who, we have a God who went to hell and back for you, who curb-stomped sin, death, and the devil. See how he loves you. Jesus wept. Jesus weeps with you. Jesus weeps for you and over you, and he says, I drench you with tears. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning, that God's weeping right there with you. And yet, Moab didn't turn. Moab heard this promise and said, out of pride and out of arrogance, I cannot put myself under that king for some reason. And this God weeps over that. His heart breaks over that. And so we've looked at the refugee, the refuge, but now let's look at the refurb. When I say refurb, y'all know what I mean by that? I think refurb is something that has been repaired, cleaned, and made to be made new again. Some of y'all have phones or computers that are refurbed because we couldn't afford the brand new one, right? It's just as good. Um, and I think the idea of refurb seems to make perfect sense when talking about us, given our brokenness, given our sickness, given our addictions. The idea of refurb feels like it's a pretty good word for human beings. I've been repaired. I've been cleaned. And I'm not just made to look new. I've been made brand new. I'm a new creation, right? And so the refurb is God doing something new in you. And so given this is who our refuge is, what should this mean for us? How should we now live? What should this change about us? And so I think the first thing that if this is who our God is, that this has to mean, this has to mean, it has to affect how we view the other. It has to mean, we, how, it has to affect how we view the other. And we can talk about immigrants. It has to affect at least that. And we can debate different policies on best practices on how to become citizens legally, but 
at the bare level. We should want to show hospitality to someone fleeing such horrors. Why? Just humanity on one level. But two, this is what the Lord has done for us. Leviticus 19.34 says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your equal, as your native-born, as one just like you, which is wild in that time. The foreigner must be treated as a native-born and love them as yourself. Why? For you were foreigners in Egypt. You, you know what it feels like to be the foreigner, to be the outcast, to be the outsider. Paul picks up on this language in Ephesians 2 where he says in verse 12, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. Then skip to verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of the, this, his household. Oh, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> like, what this means is that you and I are outsiders too. Like, and as an outsider to another outsider, it has to affect how we view one another, to welcome one another. If God welcomed us into his family and we're guests in his family, then this, we ought to follow suit to someone else. We ought to treat others with that same love and respect that was given to us. And so what this means is we can't label anyone as more or less valuable depending on which country they come from. We cannot do that. We cannot, we can, it, it has to change that we can't just label someone as, as, as more criminal or less criminal based on what country they come from. And so it has to affect how we view political refugees, but not just political refugees. It also has to affect 100% that, but it also has to affect how we view church refugees. I know there's probably many here who feel like they're a church refugee, and I'm just, I'm thankful you're here, and we want to give an opportunity to earn your trust and to show you that hospitality and welcome that Christ showed us. It has to mean also the way that we, 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 we show love and, and, and care for all types of refugees. Refugees fleeing white supremacy. Refugees fleeing, fleeing any type of exploitation. Any type of fleeing from any type of horrors and abuse. Wouldn't you just open up your, your arms to someone in this way? And so this, at the bare minimum, we should be the most hospitable, caring, compassionate people in the world. That's what the church should be. And we're so fixated on what is in and out of our camps. This has to change how we view the other, because that's who we were. But two, this refurb that has to happen is it has to affect how we view sin and redemption. It, I mean, it is possible for us to rejoice at God's victory over evil without taking pleasure in the death of any person or nation. Let me say that again. It is, it is possible for us to rejoice at God's victory over evil without taking pleasure in the death of any individual or nation. And I think there are some of us who really enjoy when someone falls. There are some of us who really enjoy when seeing someone kicked out of a group. 
kicked out of, of, of your church, out of your nation, out of your tribe, whatever it may be. And we say, thank goodness they're not with us anymore. We mourn. We mourn. And we just, we just tend to be very judgmental as Christians, like and as if our mission is to condemn sinners to their eternal destiny rather than come alongside fellow sinners and testify to the magnitude of God's grace and mercy. Christ came to seek and save the lost. And Paul says, who I am the foremost, that I am the chief of sinners. And if that's who I am, if I'm the biggest sinner in the world, then that's how I walk into rooms knowing that I am the biggest sin in the world. And so before I talk about you and the, the speck in your eye, I'm looking at the log in my own eye. I'm checking my motives, and I'm repenting constantly. This doesn't mean we lessen God's law. It just changes how we approach one another. I mean, love and compassion and grace. I mean, how does God's heart look towards you? How does God respond to you? It says he's drenching you with tears. And so what type of compassion did the Lord Jesus have towards you? I'd say let's lead out in that same compassion. Lastly, the refurb means we are all refugees. Every single one of us. Whether you ever leave this country or whether you Live in peace, presumable peace, in this country. All of us are going to be refugees because death makes refugees of us all. Death makes refugees of us all. And all of us are going to have to pilgrim and have to beg for asylum in the shelter and refuge of another. And so I just ask, are you ready for that? Are we ready for that journey? I had one doctor tell me many years ago, she was describing her work, and maybe this is in a dark place she was at, but she says, all I really do is just delay the inevitable. It's just delaying the inevitable because we know at some point that journey is going to come for all of us. It's coming, and so who will you seek refuge in then? Who will you turn to? Remember, Isaiah is reminding, you, reminding Judah of the madness of trusting in these other nations. Don't put your trust in these, other, in these Philistines or the Moabites. They'll be coming to seek you for help. And so as for us today, God is now reminding you of the madness of trusting in all these other many gods and these idols that we've made. I think we all strive to make our mark here on this earth. We all want to be remembered. We all want to affect the next generation. But what happens when we die? <laughs> You think, do you know your great-grandfather well? Do you know their name? What happens? I mean, even, even the things that seem to have stood the test of time, pyramids, and we think, oh, these things are immaculate. But what do they really tell us about the person who built it? We can see the, the, the ingenuity. We can see the, the egos to drive to build something like that. We can see maybe the horrors that it took to build something like that. But what does it really tell us about the person? Hardly nothing. And so are we ready? Like we can't take anything with us. And that's one thing we need to learn as refugees. We cannot take anything with us. And so as refugees, where will you turn? How will you live now? Our hope is actually in another refugee who escaped an oppressive king as a young child, and even though this young child, this young refugee, would become the king of kings one day. And that refugee, he does get to take something with him. He gets to take us with him.
not away, whisked off to some heaven far, far away. That's fairy tale. God brings and makes his home here on this earth. But are you ready for that refu- Are you ready for that pilgrimage? Are you ready for that journey? And so I want to encourage you this morning. May we learn to live like refugees, to be the compassionate, because we were the outsider, to be gracious because we know our own sin, to be refurbished, <laughs> and finding our refuge in Christ and in Christ alone. Let me pray for us.